see the world breaking and falling apart. And I don't know what to do with it. What to do with it. I see hate building up all of these walls. Turns family into enemies. What do we do with it? wanted to start by reading the gospel that was assigned to this day, the 20th chapter of St. John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So just such a rich text. And I, uh, I indicated this morning that every time I read really any passage, something else drop, jumps out at me. I don't know what grabs you when you hear that read. There's so much there. There are so many characters involved. But what What sort of occurred to me this morning when I was reading it was the fact that, you know, the disciples are locked away for fear that what has happened to Jesus may well happen to them. They are closely identified with him. He's become a threat to the powers that be, political and religious, therefore was publicly humiliated and tortured and crucified. And you can imagine if you were identified as Jesus team, right, his close followers, that you would be scared to death. And they were. Though Christ had told them to expect this, this is what was coming, uh, that he would uh, on the third day be raised and go ahead of them into Galilee, though the faithful women at the tomb early have already proclaimed that news, uh, they are locked away in some house somewhere, blinds drawn, doors locked, because they're afraid. And Jesus comes, And the first thing he says is not a reprimand or judgment, but it is peace. 
Peace be with you. I give you peace. And then breathes on them, the Holy Spirit says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. They have now been in the presence of the risen Christ. And what occurred to me this morning was, a week later, the Gospel says, a week later, where were they? They were back in the same house, locked up again. Thomas was with them this time, and I think that's what distracts us, right? Thomas, who said, unless I jam my finger in his wounds, I'm not going to believe. And now Thomas is there, and so Jesus says, essentially, go ahead, have at it, Thomas. <laughs> you know, so that sort of catches our attention, and we tend to... But, but meanwhile, what I've sort of neglected to focus on, which occurred to me this time, was a week later after they'd been forgiven, given the Holy Spirit, and sent back out, they're still locked in this house. So what is Jesus going to say this time, right? Again, he says, peace be with you. huh? And I think this is indicative of the church in all times as and in all places. We have a tendency to lock ourselves away. The world is too full of chaos and change. If we just kind of stay together in here, shut that out, uh, maybe that's safer for us. So that's that's one of the things that occurred to me this this time that hasn't really occurred to me much before. Um, I'm not sure about you, but maybe you have a question related to this passage, related to the celebration of Easter, related to the Bible in general, related to uh, denominations, uh, related to anything. Be brave, uh, because the question you have, I assure you, somebody else has a related question. So once the ball gets rolling, it tends to keep rolling. So who can get us started. Brent has a microphone, so you just get that microphone very close, speak your question, or it could be a comment. You might have you know, something you want to share, uh, and then we'll just kind of discuss it openly. This is what we call doing public theology. We have a question there. So we're, we're discussing the issues of the faith, and this is a, a good context to do that in, we believe. I'd like to get the two of your thoughts about the power of prayer. And it's when I pray, it's easy for me to ask for strength, love, knowledge. But I'm not sure where uh, I cross the line between God's will and my will in prayer. It's hmm. a good question. Uh, the the prayer card that we uh, our cancer support group sends to our members each month when we meet talks about how the power of prayer is not in the one who says it, but in the one who receives it. And so uh, there's some some comfort in knowing that your words matter less than the direction um, to that, that you pray towards, which is towards God, um, which I find comforting. Uh, my favorite Luther... Martin Luther thing about prayer is that he was he wrote in his little introduction to the Lord's Prayer in the large catechism, not the small one, but the big one, is he he was like in a, in a classic Martin Luther rant went off about how conceited we could be to possibly imagine we have better words than the Lord's Prayer to pray to God. He's like Jesus gave gave us the actual thing to say, and we go off on our own thinking we can do better than Jesus, which. I find to be just a classic Luther rant. It's very lovely. You should look it up. It's funny. He's like, he just great. So he's kind of like, what conceit do we have to imagine we can pray for something? So um, I do like that. He sort of says the Lord's Prayer covers all the things you need uh, in it 
it covers, you know, thy will be done, you know, be with me, help me, help my enemies, all these things like that you don't always know what to pray for. And he's like, you don't have to know what to pray for. You just say the Lord's Prayer and you'll be good. So I find that to be a comfort as well. Um, I think you can, the point of prayer is a connection, right? So it's a, a communication with God, which is important. Um, and I think when we start to cross into like, God, can you do this thing for me? Like, give me a good parking spot, you know, or whatever that you pray for. I mean, if it happens, are you like, sweet, God answered my prayer and I got the second spot at Cub, which never happens. Or or if you don't get it, does that mean God's like, nah, you need to walk? Like, is that what, you know, like, so I think when we start to get into like these kind of different prayers and and trying to say like what we want, we have an expected outcome right, of what we want when we pray this thing. Like, I'm going to pray for this thing and I want it to happen. If it doesn't happen, God didn't answer my prayer. Um, That gets a little sketchier. Uh, And that's maybe, I think our will is like our expected outcome. And you need to be, I think there's some danger in having an expected answer to your prayer as opposed to an open answer to your prayer, which is maybe more the will part of that. I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, prayer on behalf of people who have asked for you to pray for them is, is I, you know, it's a, it's a form of kind of Christian compassion. If uh, the question is, you know, I, I, I desire a particular outcome, which I think, in all honesty, we, we generally do for whatever it is we happen to be praying for. Is there some line whereby I might cross that I'm, you know, that I'm sort of demanding some kind of outcome? I don't know. I don't know if there's really anything you can do wrong in terms of praying. Short of praying over and against the, the, (laughs) the needs of somebody else, right? You know, God, please let me get this, not that guy. I mean, short of that sort of thing, you know, which I guess we do when we pray for the Vikings to win, you know. (laughs) Short of that sort of thing. I don't think that there's, you know, I don't really worry much about offending God with my prayers because there are times when the outcome of something seems to have been determined and I'm praying that there would be a different outcome and it appears as though things are going this way but I'm praying that they go that way and depending on your personality and your faith and your proclivities you might pray in a certain way even I mean either I think the Bible's full of people yelling at God complaining of, of the results of their earlier prayers. I prayed for this, and now you, you got me in this pit, God, you know? My, I mean, you could say that the prayer from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, you know, which is thought to be the beginning of the 22nd Psalm, which ends in a sort of statement of faith in God's presence. But I don't know that there's any real rules I just, I couldn't be wrong. There are people who claim to be prayer experts. I'm ne- I've never been one of them. <laughs> uh, you know, but I think it's just fine to yell at God, to plead with God, 
uh, especially, I think, the, and this is true in my entire view of the whole Christian faith, whenever we are advocating on somebody else's behalf, for somebody else's well-being, I think we're on pretty safe ground. If it's for me, then these are good questions to ask, you know. But, and there's also, there's also incidents in the Bible where God it just indicated that God changed God's mind, you know. Was going to do this, but, you know, after all your badgering, God yeah. relented, God changed God's mind. So, I, I think it's a real, organic, alive, living relationship that we are invited into. And prayer can be really just such, I mean, a central part of that, that uh, for us to ignore it or uh, just neglect it is that it's not accessing the richness of what God is offering to us as people of faith. It's good. That's a good question. We had no prayer questions. No prayer at questions first. at the first service. service. Good. That's great. <laughs> we'll give you a mic. The podcast needs you to have a microphone. I have a question on the Bible. Okay, we know that we have an Old Testament, we have a New Testament. And you know they weren't walking along chipping on stone, writing this down as they were doing it. How long after or before was the Bible actually written? Or they got together to actually come up with a Bible? Yeah. Yeah, so the, I mean, the Bible, I mean, the Bible is, uh, is best thought of as a library, right? Not a book. It's a, it's a library of books written in vastly different times, locations, authors, a variety of genres. So you read the morning newspaper one way, but you read a sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet another way, and you read poetry another way, and you read um, medical journals another way. I mean, there are vastly different genres of scripture. So from apocalyptic to historical uh, and written at different times and places. So the big answer is the Bible is a compilation of, of, of books brought together from across a, a, a spectrum of times and places, uh, the variety of which is breathtaking. Um, if the question is, when was this all assembled into this book that we now call the Bible, then that history uh, is, is fairly well documented and can be traced back and you generally have to take a class for at least a semester to access the, the whole information. But um, it's got to do with various codexes and different compilations of scripture at different times uh, and so, but early on in the life of the church in the second, late, the third, third century, we kind of arrive at the, uh, at the canon, uh, our, our version of the Holy Scriptures, uh, the 66 books of the Bible as we understand them. But nearly impossible to speak of the Bible or its authorship or its origins or its compilation without first coming to, uh, a basic understanding that it is a, a variety of books, uh, dozens of, of different authors, many of them unknown and unknowable, others attributed directly to an authorship 
which is impossible that that person wrote it. So the Bible uh, does not approach the sort of literal truthiness of our uh, what we expect from from other types of genres of literature. It doesn't make those claims for itself. It doesn't try. It's not trying to be science in almost any aspect of how we understand uh, that process. Um, but it is trying to share truth. So, I mean, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, attributed to to Moses, who dies in the midst of those. So, how did he finish writing them after uh, he, in you know, dies in the midst of them? So, uh, authorship is is uh, is not, not definite in, in 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 many places. Some of Pauline's letters, some of Paul's letters, are attributed to Paul, but there's general. Uh, scholarship consensus that Paul did not write this book, but one of his followers did, uh, and that was common practice in those days. So, complicated, convoluted history of the compilation of Scripture. All that said, uh, we believe it to be the inspired Word of God, uh, a gift to the church, living and active, uh, always moving forward, uh, and um, uh, uh, but we, we do not ascribe in the Lutheran theological tradition to what some would call the inerrancy of Scripture. We are fully capable of looking at the Scripture and saying, yeah, there's mistakes all over the place. This king was not king when he says this happened when he was king. He was just wrong. <laughs> uh, they, they don't, it doesn't even try to reconcile its own timeline of events, even on huge things like the crucifixion and the resurrection. This happened, and then that happened, and then another gospel says, no, no, Jesus didn't cleanse the temple way back here. He did it right before the crucifixion. And so, well, what, what, who's right? They, and did they not know that that guy already wrote that? And he wrote, nah, they knew. They weren't trying, they were trying to tell from their perspective truth the way they're telling the story. In the same way I've used this as an analogy, I could tell you right now, I could share with you what our wedding day was like. Almost exactly 25 years ago, Lori and I were married down in New Prague, uh, and I could describe the day to you, and I would get several real, <laughs> real details wrong. Color of whatever I was wearing and what how things happened exactly, uh, what order things happened in, and then, you know, what happened next. I would, I would get things wrong, but I would be telling you the truth. I would be telling you the truth of the family that gathered and the love that was shared and Father John, who ignored all of our planning leading up to the service, said, let's, you have a choice between these sets of vows. And we're like, yeah, we really like this one. We don't like those. Those are bad. We like this one. So he just did this one when the time came. You know, just whatever, you know. So I tell you all this stuff, and I would get some of the details wrong, but I would be telling you the truth. And other people, if you, then if Lori told you her story, she'd tell you the truth too. She'd get more of the details right than I would have gotten. But it would be not the same as I would have told it. We would have both been telling you the truth. Uh, we would have gotten some things wrong in there. I would have gotten some things wrong. Um, and the Bible has errors in it. There's no getting around it. So we do not ascribe to this inerrancy of Scripture because we don't think we're protecting it from itself. We don't think it needs that. It's never needed that. It's living and active and ongoing. And it's important, too, yeah. They, they weren't carrying around 
chisels and stone to write things down, and it was oral first. I mean, it was a spoken tradition, just like Chad hasn't written down the details of his wedding, but maybe one day his girls are going to ask for that, and they are going to write it down, and it will be even further away from the wedding day, and it will it will be a little more vague, right? But So the further you get away from an event, the less detailed you're going to get. We all know that. Um, but the basic you know, what they're trying to get across is important. So it's, I think when Chad says, you know, the, the, the Bible is a library and it's important to read it as, as the type of literature it is or the type of writing it is, you know, we call this um, text criticism, like read it with a critical eye and understand what kind of writing you're looking at first. It is sometimes interesting if you're kind of a nerd like I am to know some of the, like, which gospel was written first? Like, I find that interesting. Not everybody does find that interesting. That's fine. Um, but to know, for me to know that Mark is first and then the others kind of drew from his and expanded on some of his stories where he said, like, one line, Matthew does two chapters, and that's kind of interesting. Not everybody finds that interesting. Um, to think of what letter of Paul, what letter did Paul write in the order of Paul's letters, I find that really interesting because you can see sort of the movement of Paul's narrative as he moves along and spreads the gospel. So, you know, to know that Thessalonians is the first one that he wrote is really interesting to me because you can kind of read that and be like, oh, here's what the people right away in the earliest part of the church were worried about. And then as you get further on in his writings, you can kind of see like, here's what the later church was really worried about. I mean, those are interesting details, but they don't change the sort of fundamental truth of what you're reading. Um, but it is important to kind of read scripture with that eye of knowing what they were trying to get across. And same with, uh, in, in the Gospels, to know each Gospel writer had a specific audience they were writing for, right? So one of them is writing for a, a Jewish audience, and one of them is writing for a Gentile audience, and that changes what what they say and how they say it because they're trying to say things differently. So if I was going to preach a sermon to a bunch of kids, that's different than a sermon I would preach to a bunch of seminary students, which is different than a sermon I would preach to a, a group of my friends, right? Like you're, you're, you could say the same kind of basic thing, but you're saying it with a different lens to who you're speaking to. So some of those do change how it is written, but it doesn't change sort of the fundamental truth. And so one of our jobs as readers of scripture is to to look at it and say what is what is the 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 basic truth in this text what is what am i learning about god what is this teaching me about who god is and what god is about in this parable in this story in this whatever what do i learn about god not necessarily the detail of like how many days did they march around jericho like does that matter as much no what what does that story tell you about God and who God is for and what God is doing. That's way more what the text is about, I think, which makes the Bible interesting. And then you can apply that. So if that's what God is about, then you can be like, okay, I'll add that to my file of what God is about in my life. So if I know God is working in this way in this story, then I can trust that God continues to work in that way now, right? We have sort of a, we get sort of a history of who God is and what God does to apply to right now. That's good. Huh? Oh, 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 oh. Brent, run. Oh, oh Brent's we got... got one up there. And then... Yeah, Frank. <laughs> yeah, my question is about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, in Scripture, we read that when Jesus was arrested and sent to Pontius Pilate, he judged him and he told the people that he found no fault on him and he washed his hands 
yeah. and turn him over to the people. But in the Apostles' Creed, we, we read that, or we say that he suffered on a Pontius Pilate, died, and was buried. Mm-hmm. Why are we still putting the blame on him today for the death of Jesus after he had washed his hand and turned him over? Huh. Great question. Thank you, Frank. Frank's from Liberia. That's, uh, he's also one of our top ushers, so we're blessed <laughs> to have him here. Um, Pontius Pilate. What's our second question about Pontius Pilate yeah, Pontius of the day? Pilate, Man. That's something. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and it relates a little bit to the way it was asked in the first um, hour. You know, Pontius Pilate, um, if I understand the question, Frank, that, you know, he washed his hands and he didn't find any guilt in this man. On the other hand, he also did not turn him free. He, he, he acceded to the desires of the crowd. Uh, at that point, you could say, of the mob who were at crying out for him to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. So uh, Pontius Pilate gets credit for that in the history and subsequently in the creed written in the third century uh, because uh, he had the power at that moment to set Jesus free and and have Barabbas, who was said to be a murderer, Convicted murderer, part of the insurrection, crucified. He did not do that. He he said, I've seen no guilt in this man and washed his hands of it. In the same way that we often find no guilt in ourselves. <laughs> and, and, try, and try to say, uh, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Or <laughs> whatever the case might be. So Pontius Pilate gets written into the history of, uh, of the faith. In, in in a way that convicts him of that uh, of that crucifixion, he he did say he did not see any uh, guilt in this man, but he did not set him free. If that answers your question, yeah, yeah. thank you. Run, Brent, run. <laughs> we got yeah, we're good. Do you think there's any value in reading or studying the many Gospels that didn't make the cut when they were assembling the Bible? Yeah, it's fun stuff. You do it in seminary. There's, there are other uh, post-canonical writings that did not make the cut uh, in terms of uh, in our bound Bibles. Uh, there's a Gospel of Thomas that gets a lot of attention. Uh, there Mary are, Magdalene. Yeah. Uh, so there are other books. And uh, we study them in seminary and set them up against the uh, the accepted canon of Scripture and and discuss their history and origins and context and all of the other ways we consider the other things. Is it is there value for a person of faith to you know for uh, who's not you know charged with teaching and preaching from these scriptures to to uh, access these other writings? I think if you have an interest in it, I, uh, go for it. I think it's fascinating stuff. You always want to be careful uh, who's presenting it to you. Like it shouldn't be Ron Brown who wrote the, uh, the da, Vinci code. da Vinci Code, right? <laughs> Dan, Dan Brown. Dan Brown, Dan Brown, thank you. It shouldn't be him. I mean, you can read his good novels, but guy's way off the edge in terms of his <laughs> theology. So you want to know where who's presenting this material unless you're just reading the source material yourself without any guidance. Uh, but uh, I think it's 
uh, I think it's, there's some fascinating stuff there. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff about Jesus' childhood and taking, making a pie and throwing it up and it became birds and flew away and stuff like that. I remember reading. So that's kind of <laughs> cool. Uh, do I need to know that in order for my own sort of connection to Christ and my understanding of my own status as a chosen, forgiven, claimed child of God? No, I don't. But I also don't need to know, according to Mark's gospel, the first and earliest and shortest gospel, I also don't, don't need to know about the birth of Jesus and the <laughs> shepherds and the angels. I know this is just causes an audible gasp in the room, but according to Mark... Yeah, you, you, that's good. It's good. It's great to, it's uh, wonderful. There's, we love it. We em, enter that story fully, but don't need to know it to know what God has done for you in Christ. You need to know about his death and his resurrection. And Mark was in a hurry to get to that part of the story. Um, so yeah, there's lots of other stuff to know. There are historians you can read that are writing around the time of the of the of the gospels and uh, during the life and ministry of Jesus Josephus and uh fascinating stuff to access and read I wouldn't try to hinder anybody from doing it and it's interesting to then ask the question why it wasn't included right so to ask what it's missing or what what were their reasonings so sometimes they felt like it was just redundant and it was already covered in the other ones that they felt like were more maybe accurate or historically you know significant they had some original text parts to them that that fit better um it's just it's one of those where you're like i wonder why this wasn't included like why wasn't this perspective valued by the people who decided to you know this was scripture i think that's an equally important thing to look at but they are interesting to read there was a big when the gospel of thomas remember when that was like in the news for a while and stuff and everybody was like um i mean that's it's an interesting book to read and and learn from All right, so in the passage that we read this morning, um, John 20, verse 22, it says, And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So when I look at that verse, I think about Acts, and I think about Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit. But it appears that this happened before then. <laughs> but I know early on in John, Jesus says, If I do not go to the Father, you will not receive the Advocate. So feels like there's some stuff going on there that <laughs> I don't know about. So if you could speak to that, that would be great. And then part two um, I often find when it comes to the Trinity, God and Jesus easy to relate to because we think about God the Father, Jesus the human, and the Spirit gets talked about so intangibly about <laughs> breath and fire. And so how do we relate to the Spirit as part of the Trinity? <laughs> so I would say you can't help relate to the Spirit. The Spirit is always doing its work. And I, I, I sort of bristle against the, the sort of Lutheran tendency to beat ourselves up about not talking or focusing enough on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit couldn't care less. <laughs> Holy Spirit is doing its work. It's here. It's, it's, it's calling us together. It's sanctifying us. It's bringing faith. It's doing all the things that God, Christ, and the Godhead, three in one, are up to. So... Do we need to sort of give the spirit more credit? You know, we're always the Lutherans love to beat themselves up, or or to just <laughs> take the abuse from others. Like you guys never talk. Well, whatever. You know, <laughs> you can't stop the spirit from doing the spirit's work. So the spirit is why we're here. Um, uh, the other question was um, the what? Remind me. Oh, about the she said verse twenty-two. The 
the advocate and how that oh, right. Pentecost yeah. and so, all that stuff right. is. Okay. So as soon as the Bible creates some sort of rule, like you, you receive the Holy Spirit, the, the Christ promised the Holy Spirit, if I go away, I'll, it'll be better for you, in fact, because I'll send the advocate and you'll never be alone. And then he's running around the night of the resurrection giving, handing the Spirit out. What's that about? Like, do we have the Spirit? Are we waiting for the Spirit? Do you get it when you're baptized? Does it sometimes show up other times? Yes to all of the above. So <laughs> this happens all the time in Scripture. We would love things to be in creedal form, you know. So we would love things to be mapped out in a, in a you know, literally in a, what are those things called when you, you know, and this goes here and this goes here, like a tree. Uh, we would love things to stay in their proper place in order like that. But there's not, there's, I mean, this happens throughout a flow chart. scripture. A flow chart. A flow chart. Thank you. Flow chart. That's what I was looking for. Um, but there, there are, uh, there are all kinds of examples where things are, the cart is in front of the horse and the spirit is given before it arrives at Pentecost. So there are, uh, the, I guess the way we would approach that is to say there are various manifestations of the spirit. There is no taming it or keeping it in check or uh, exactly predicting where and how the spirit will show up. That's kind of my She's wily. Answer. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is wily. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... The Holy Spirit being the hardest to relate to is not an unusual feeling among Christians. And I, uh, as much as it's like, yeah, we like to beat ourselves up because we really talk about God or we talk about Jesus and we kind of are like, oh, that spirit's kind of confusing. So we're just going to leave that over there. Um, I think, uh, if, if you've done any sort of breathing techniques, uh, yoga, meditation, any of that stuff. To me, that is the, the easiest, most accessible way to connect to the spirit because the word, you've maybe heard me say this before, but the word for breath and spirit in both Hebrew and Greek are the same. And so I think that's intentional and there's a reason why we talk about the spirit being accessible all the time as accessible as a breath, right? So if all you need to be reminded of the presence of God, if you're feeling like God is not near, all you do is just take a breath. And that's access, accessing accessing the spirit. Wow, that was really hard to say. So I think that means, yes, the spirit is, we like to have like clearly defined things like Jesus was born and you know grew up and he was a person and we're people and we get that and that makes sense and it's really easy to understand jesus because jesus was human and we're human and yay that's easy but the spirit is not human so that's confusing and we want to like say okay well the spirit's like a dove and you're like okay but how how does does the dove like hover here for a while and like hang out with me all the do we all have like a dove flying around with us all the time like how does that work i mean i think we want to really have like a clear picture because for us jesus is such a clear picture right and i think um part of what makes the spirit interesting uh is it's in a, it, the ability to not be put in a little clearly defined box and to say just like you can't control the wind, you cannot control the spirit, right? And just like you cannot always see the wind, you can feel it. And so there's those those pieces of why the spirit is described in these ways that are, you know, breath, fire, wind, things that we can't control, that but that you can see the effect of. I think that's intentional in scripture to try to help us understand sort of the not understandable. <laughs> but... 
but I think breath, that's an easy, that maybe the most easy way to connect to spirit is breath. So everybody do it right now. Take a nice deep breath. There you go. You just connected to God. Good for you. So we'll take one more quick one, Brent, right here. We'll, then, we, then we better baptize this little one. Yeah. <laughs> Odin's ready, man. Look at him. He's like, come on, guys. <laughs> Going on that discussion of the spirit, was that spirit present in the Old Testament to the prophets and how they foresaw what was going to happen? Yes. Yeah, so the... the <laughs> The idea, if you will, of of the Spirit of God uh, is there from the beginning. The God's Spirit hovered over the over the waters in creation, and you know brings form out of the void. And uh, so, yeah, there is a there is a an, an understanding of God's presence in the form of of Spirit all throughout the Scriptures, from the very earliest writings of the Hebrew Scriptures into the into the epistles and and the end of the old uh, the New Testament. Yep, it's there all all throughout. So we know we're leaving some questions in the room, which we always do. Uh, we are actually going to go after this service over to Omni Brewing, and whoever's gathering over there will continue the conversation. So you have a question, you want to bring it over there in um, uh, Maple Grove, just up the road a bit. Uh, you're welcome to join us there. Lutherans are meant to sit around and have beer and ask questions. Yep. That's how we are. Home. Yeah, so, uh, but in, thanks in for this. We appreciate your uh, flexibility and willingness to do as we have done public theology. Speaking of our faith, it can be intimidating, but we learn the more and more we do it. We've been doing this for three years now uh, that uh, there is a value to an open exploration of the faith when we do it together, and especially in the context of worship, which I'll tell you is a quite a rare thing to do. So thank you. Uh, we'll continue now. Thank you.